from ink-black darkness and bottomless emptiness came a light. And then another and another. This is the story of how it all started. All we see, all we don't see. But what or who was behind the nothingness turned something? Is there really a God to encounter? The light separated light from dark, water from sky. God saw that it was good, but it didn't end there. Human beings reflecting the very nature of God. So good, so very good. But more clever than any wild animal was the serpent. They took and ate, and everything changed. But the unchanging one would bring them back, would bring us back, calling to each one and revealing himself on top of mountains, through flicker and flame, in tents and temples, and now our own hearts. New places to meet with his people, new ways to be close to him. A people once on the outside, now invited in, presenting gifts to God and washing clean as best they could. But the old plan was only a hint of the good things in the new plan. These reminders of sin could never remove it. Only a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people could wash away the last smudge of sin once and for all. I may have told you this, but a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to sit in the cockpit on the captain's side of a 747 commercial airline simulator. It was one of the most exhilarating experiences I've ever had. I think I lost 10 pounds of perspiration. They told me this thing is worth millions and millions of dollars. Don't mess it up. They were joking with me, but I took it seriously. I tried to take off and land at many airports around the world. I tried. Some were good, some were not so good. I was told that that simulator is so real-life experience that a pilot could be trained, walk out of it, and go fly the real thing. I cannot imagine that. But uh, every month, pilots show up there, and they sit in the simulator, the type of plane that they fly, and somebody sits back there on a computer and throws at them every imaginable scenario in order to help them improve in their skills. I walked away totally impressed by the men and women who fly planes. You say, why are you telling us about your simulator experience? Because we're about to talk about a spiritual simulator called the tabernacle. And you and I get to study this tabernacle, and you're going to get a chance to go through the tabernacle if you choose to do so. And I don't want you to think about it as an ancient artifact, a piece of Old Testament history from way back when, as something boring to go listen to like in a museum. No, this is a real experience. And it will help you understand what it truly means to encounter God and to experience his presence in your life. So you don't want to miss out on it. As of yesterday morning, we had over 1,200 that are already signed up for uh, the opportunity. So don't, 
Don't put it off. Make sure you take advantage of it. So we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. We'll put the notes in the blog in case you miss out on some of these things. You can catch up. But I want to start with an overview of the tabernacle. And we do so with a, a bit of artistry here that gives us a picture of what it would have been like in the time that the tabernacle existed. This whole complex is called the tabernacle. Some people say, no, it's just the tent of the meeting. But I'm going to use the word interchangeably for the, the whole complex itself. It's uh, shape, as far as uh, size, was approximately 150 feet long and about 75 feet wide. So when you think about that, the tabernacle is not this massive uh, uh, setting. It's not this huge uh, facility that God tells them to build. Relatively small when you think about all the tribes that surrounded this thing. And that already begins to tell us something about God and our relationship with him. God who is so big that space cannot contain him. There's no end to God. He's infinite. Loves you and me so much. Once you hear that, loves you and me so much that in essence he reduces himself to a form and a fashion where he can be present with us. In the Old Testament, he in essence reduces himself to the size of a box, the Ark of the Covenant, to be there in the midst of his people. In the New Testament, we read last weekend in John chapter 1, that he reduces himself to a person. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that God even reduces himself even further to be with us. That is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he actually comes to live in his followers. Now I want you to do me a favor. Because I think one of the reasons why we don't experience God's presence in our lives and in our church so often is because we don't live with an awareness of his presence. So I want you to find your pulse for a moment on your wrist or on your neck. Go ahead and do that. I'm going to be still so you have a chance to focus. Close your eyes if you don't mind so you can really focus on feeling that pulse. Once you found it, keep it there. If you can't find it, please alert someone next to you. Now find it, Okay. Close your eyes for a moment. I know, I know you don't like to do that, but if you don't mind, feel it and listen to me while, while you keep feeling it. That pulse tells you that you're alive. Pulse tells you your heart's beating. We're not often aware of our pulse, only when we run too fast, climb some steps, or we're sick. But most of the time, we're unaware it's pulsating. God's presence is the same way. But you can only know your pulse if you get still and become sensitive to it. Right? You can open your eyes and you can stop taking your pulse unless you really enjoy it. But here's my point. What did you have to do to be aware of your pulse? You had to slow down. You had to stop. We had to be kind of still. You had to really focus to find it and, and be aware of it. Same thing is true with God. God is that still, small voice. And, and God, though he's macro, is also micro. And sometimes God says, in order for you to know me, I'm not going to adjust to you. You have to adjust to me. Be still and know what? That I am God. Be still. That goes totally against the grain of our culture today, which says be busy. Be active. Be on the go constantly. How can I hear God? How can I know God? Well, I don't take time to be still and become aware of his, living, of his living presence, Almighty God. 
How do we move into, how do we access his presence? Let's go back to a picture again. And what we're going to discover is that there's a way into the presence of God. Through a gate, past the altar, past the labor. We're going to talk about these three things this morning. Past, for the priest, past this veil into the holy place. Table of showbread, altar, incense, candlestick, we'll talk about next weekend. Then past this next veil into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, the fire, the cloud, the very presence of God. So there's a, there's a way into God's presence. But before we get into that, what was the tabernacle made out of? And where did it come from, all those materials? Because the people are wandering in the wilderness. It's not like a Home Depot where you can go pick this stuff up. So let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 25 if you want to follow along. We're going to be hopping around the scriptures a little bit, so you want to be ready for that. All right, Exodus chapter 25. I want to start by reading verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. In other words, I only want offerings from people who really, their heart is moved to give it to me. Here is the list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat hair for cloth, tanned ramskins, fine goatskin leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. And be, there's more. This is just a partial listing. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary, that's the tabernacle, so I can live among them. Now listen carefully. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. So the question is, where did they get this stuff from? I want to show you where they got it from. God gave it to them back in Exodus chapter 12, if you want to turn there. When they were leaving Egypt after the 10th plague, the Egyptians were so glad to see them go that they gave them many gifts. That's where all this stuff came from to build a tabernacle. God always knows what he's doing, doesn't he? Exodus chapter 12, verse 35. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord, it says, the Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. And they took all that wealth into the wilderness. God had a plan. He wanted them to give back to him part of what he gave to them to build this tabernacle so he could be with them. How did the people respond? Well, if you skip ahead to Exodus chapter 35, you'll see that they responded the way every preacher hopes the congregation will respond. Look at chapter 35 of Exodus, verse 20. So the whole community of Israel left Moses returned to their tents. They got more instruction what to bring. Verse 21. All whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were moved came and brought their sacred offerings to the Lord. They brought all the materials needed for the tabernacle for the performance of its rituals and for the sacred garments. <clears throat> now look at chapter 36, verse 6. I love this passage. So Moses gave the command and the message was sent to the camp. Men and women, <clears throat> excuse me, don't prepare any more gifts for the sanctuary. We have enough. I always just love to announce that sometime. 
So if people stopped bringing their sacred offerings, their contributions were more than enough to complete the whole project. What did they have to spend it on anyway in the wilderness? Nothing. You couldn't go out to eat. There was no mall to visit. There was no events to go to. I mean, what you're facing in the wilderness is danger. You're facing uh, disease. You're facing enemies. You're facing wild animals. You're facing issue of food and, and the issue of water. They were so dependent on God that they wanted God's glory. They were happy to give this stuff up. They sensed their desperate need for God. Now, when they got in the promised land, that all shifted. Once they had their own land, once they were established, then it wasn't like we need God so much. Now they're depending on themselves. That is the great trouble, the great problem with a materialistic society. The more I have, the more I depend on what I have rather than the one who allows me to have it. And that's called idolatry. And that's one of the reasons why I'm convinced we don't experience God's presence and why our churches in America, especially a wealthy country, don't experience God's presence. We don't really need God. I mean, when we go to church 1.7 times a month, what does that say? That just sends the message, I show up when it's convenient for me. I just honestly don't need God. Preacher, you're stepping on toes. Just be honest. Just be honest. We don't sense we need God. And until we sense we need God, we're not going to experience God. Here's a thought you might want to jot down. If you and I want to experience the presence of God, we need to demonstrate our need for God. And one of the ways we do that is we give back to God what he's given to us to say to God, I need you. I don't give back to God so God will give me more. And when I give to God, I don't want more money. I want more God. <laughs> I want to know God more. And that's, that's kind of that mindset we have to shift into. And you're, you really are a remarkable congregation. I want you to know that. Because you have been generous in the six years I've been here at least. You've been very generous in giving toward Vision 22. And we just had our, our last Vision 22. And I'm going to give you some, uh, some results. And this was the right time to do it in the passage. I just loved how it all came together. I didn't plan it this way. But this is how it came together. But I want to give you an update. What's going down at Seven Corners. Where we're establishing our fourth tabernacle. I'm at campus with the presence of God. This is Ben Carlson. I'm going to interview him. He's our global partner. He's going to oversee it. Watch, watch this. See what's going on. Church, I want to introduce you to Seven Corners Coffee and to Ben Carlson, who's going to be our coffee director. Ben, it is exciting being down here and seeing what is going on. Could you give us an update? What's happening down here? Well, Dell, we are launching Seven Corners. It doesn't might not look like much, yeah. but this place is transformed. And I yeah. just I just want to say thank you to everyone at Wooddale who's given to make this a reality because. I'm excited, and I, and I know you're excited, I know Kyle's excited, we're excited because this is going to transform the seven corners in the West Bank. Yeah. So we're here at the West Bank, three grad schools, policy school, law school, business school, and over uh, 3,000 students, over 500 foreign students. So, I mean, we have an opportunity to really change the world if you think about that. Yeah, I mean, not just the U of M, not just Minneapolis, but these are students who are going to the far corners of the world. This is impacting globally what our mission is. So is the coffee going to be good down here? 
Well, Dale, I'm glad you asked. Uh, we really, the, the vision for Seven Corners is to have exceptional coffee, to have exceptional service, and to have an exceptional venue. And right now, we are at the, the, the starting point to make this venue that exceptional place. When will it open, do you think? We're, we're shooting for July. Okay. I mean, it doesn't look like much now, but we've got a motivated team and, yeah. and a motivated uh, just group of guys that are willing to put their backs into this. That's awesome. And I'm just wondering, as people walk by, particularly students, are you getting anybody looking in the windows, wondering what's going on? Every day. Every single day we're here, somebody pokes their head in and says, can I have a coffee? And we're saying, just just, just wait, just yeah. just about. Yeah. Okay, it's going to be exciting. Hey, I, I one question I keep hearing about exceptional coffee. I'm a tea drinker, so will it be exceptional tea? Absolutely, Dale. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that we have an exceptional tea, yeah. but I'm also going to remind everybody that every cup of tea helps coffee farmers one step closer to poverty. <laughs> so whatever your conscience allows, Dale. Oh, all right. Well, thanks for the encouragement, Ben. I appreciate that. I just love that guy. It's a lot of fun. It's going to be an awesome experience. So I want you to know, I want you to know that you have been so generous that we're going to be able to accomplish our first four objectives. We're going to put a tabernacle down there. You've already heard about that. Uh, we were able and are in the process. We'll close next month on purchasing the Music Box Theater. So we're going to have a permanent tabernacle in Loring Park. Praise God for that. Uh, we're going to be able to pay off our long-term debt, so money, money that was being used to you know, pay back on a loan will now be infused into ministry uh, so that the tabernacles can uh, do ministry uh, for the glory of God. And number four, because of your generosity, we're going to be able to now plant probably 10 to 12,000 churches, tabernacles, all over Asia where less than 1% of the people know Jesus Christ. So I want to thank you for your generosity. All right? Now... That leaves one initiative left. We we're hoping to raise $1.7 million for some major upgrades that need to happen at Edina and at this campus. What we're going to do is we're going to move that into our, in our unified budget, and we'll, we'll cover those things like carpet here and other kinds of things as that becomes available. But I thought to myself, I don't like to just finish most of the race, not the whole race. And so I want us to challenge ourselves. This time of year, we always face a deficit through the summer slump. So our deficit going into the end of our fiscal year, which is August 31st, is about $263,000. We have savings uh, to cover that, but that's what we're moving in with. And we have that 1.7. Now, the accountants tell me that we have 2,800 giving units. I don't consider you units or myself one, all right? That's how they do it. But we have about 2,800 givers, right? If just 2,000 of us would give an extra $1,000 before the end of our fiscal year, August 31st, if just 2,000 of us gave an extra $1,000, we would finish in the black and we would finish that last initiative and we would be done. Marcia and I have already made our decision that we're going to do it. I'll be sending you a letter this week for you to pray about and do it. I would love to be like Moses and get up here in a few weeks and tell you enough, enough. You guys have given. We're going to finish strong. You pray and think about it, all right? Back to the tabernacle. Back to the tabernacle. I hope you saw that was a fair way to share that. It fits right in with what we were studying here. Did you notice, though, at the end of Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, God says, when you build it, build it exactly, exactly like I tell you to?
That brings us to another principle. God says, not only do I want you to depend on me, but secondly, you cannot meet God on your own. It has to be by his design. It has to be by his design. If you want to meet God, you got to follow his way. We're going to talk a lot about that. One of my favorite African-American preachers puts it this way. He says, when our sacrifice meets God's design, his glory is revealed. I love that. When my sacrifice meets God's design, he reveals his glory. That is, when I go to b- before God with a heart of generosity, a, a sacrificial heart, and in obedience, and I'm following his way, God wants to show up. God wants to reveal himself. And so if I don't sense God revealing himself in my life or in my church, maybe one of the questions I have to ask myself is, am I being obedient? Am I being generous? Am I doing things God's way? Or am I doing things my way? Which takes us to a very important passage of Scripture. The next piece of the tabernacle we're going to look at is found in Exodus chapter 27 and verse 16. Simple passage of Scripture. Exodus 27, 16 says, For the entrance to the courtyard... Make a curtain that is 30 feet long. Make it from finely woven linen and decorate it with beautiful embroidery in blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Support it with four posts, each securely set in its own base. So let's take a look at that. Again, in the artist's rendering here, this is the, this is the gate, so to speak. It was a curtain, 30 feet long, seven and a half feet high. It is the only way into God's presence is the only way. It must always be on the east end of the tabernacle complex, which is really interesting to me because if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, about verse 24, when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, there's a gate set up at the east end of the garden. And there's a flaming sword. There's an angelic being there to protect the way back into the garden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, they went east. To come back in the garden, they'd have to go back west and go through that gate, and they were forbidden from doing that. Here's the deal. We are either moving away from God or towards God. If you want to put it into principle, you can just jot this down. That is, you cannot enter or encounter God, I should say, unless you move towards him in obedience. And you're always either moving toward God or away from God. There's no standing still with God. The Bible makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament, that being a disciple means allowing him to change my life. If I'm unwilling to change, that's called disobedience. I'm moving away from God. So if I were to ask you right now, which direction is your life moving in, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, morally, relationally, financially, etc., are you moving towards God are you moving away from God? If I want to experience God's presence, I need to depend on him. I need to want him more than anything else in my life and show it through a spirit of generosity and dependence. I need to follow his design in sacrifice and in obedience. And I need to move toward him and long for him. Do you long for God? Why don't you think about that? I have to think about it. We oftentimes long for things from God. But do we just long for God? The creation, longing for the creator to be completed by the one who made us, who 
who established us. Because see, we're moving towards God. As you look at this slide that we have up here for you next, we're moving towards God, right? Everything's been uncovered. The gate, the altar, the labor, the components, the Ark of the Covenant are moving in towards him. Do you feel like you're being drawn towards God? Do you feel like you're moving in towards God? There's no other way, if you want to jot this down, there's just no other way to encounter God except this way that he provides. Now that's really important for us because in John chapter 10, Jesus reveals to us that he's the gate we have to go through to become into the presence of God. John chapter 10, let me read that passage to you where Jesus speaks out. And here's what he says, listen to him. John chapter 10, verse 1, says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come into him. Come down to verse 9. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Indeed, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, but how? But through me. Anybody else that tells you there's another gate to enter it by? Anybody who says you can set up a ladder and climb over, they're liars, they're thieves. They're robbing you of life. They're not leading you to life. I'm the only means. I came across a survey the other day by LifeWay Research Group. Their survey says that six in ten Americans say everyone eventually goes to heaven. But half say only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. While seven in ten say there's only one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Two-thirds say God accepts worship of all faiths. When they stood back from the survey, this is what they wrote. They said, these survey results reveal a troubling trend among Christians toward a more politically correct way of thinking. In the current cultural environment, the claim that Christ is the only way is deemed offensive and arrogant. For this reason, a large percentage of Christians are backing off and changing their tone, adapting to the hypersensitive environment in which they find themselves. But Christ made his claim unapologetically. There's just one way, and it's through relationship with Christ. There's no other way as much as we may want another way. And I can't help the culture wants to say there's other ways or the culture wants to improve on Jesus. Don't go there with a culture for the sake of the culture. So if I want to experience the raw presence of God, I need to be aware of God. I need to follow God's design toward him. i got to take his path. It has to be through his son. It needs to be the spirit of sacrifice and a spirit of obedience. And God says, if I come that way toward him, he'll come this way toward me and he'll reveal his glory to me and in me and to us and in us as a community of believers together. Let's move into the next phase, chapter 27, verse 1. Simple verse, it says, using acacia wood, construct a square altar, seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, four and a half feet high. 
Make horns for each of its four corners so that the horns and altar are all one piece. Overlay the altar with bronze. So here's kind of what it would look like. You'll see it, a replica of it, in life size when you go through the tabernacle experience. But this is where the sacrifices were put. It's the biggest piece of furniture. It's the first thing you see. You have to go through the altar to be able to move toward the presence of God. Now I want you to imagine what it was like for people who brought their sacrifices to be taken by the priests and to be killed and then to be offered on that altar. And there are many, many kinds of sacrifices, many kinds of offerings of dedication. I'm thinking in particular of the sacrifices for sin. I would bring my animal. I would place the, my hands on the head of that animal like a lamb. That would be symbolic of my sin and my guilt being transferred to that animal, a temporary lifting of, of guilt over my life by God. And then the priest takes the animal and cuts its throat and bleeds it out and then cuts it up appropriately and places it on the altar and it's burned up there as a sacrifice. How did they feel? How would you feel bringing that creature, knowing that it's innocent, not responsible for why it's about to die. It's taking that responsibility for me, and I keep having to offer these sacrifices over and over because I'm aware of my sinfulness. From morning to night, sacrifices will be made in the tabernacle and then the temple, all foreshadowing a need for a greater final sacrifice when God brings his lamb and he's put on an altar, which is a cross, and there he sheds his blood so my sins are permanently and completely deleted, forgiven, and forgotten by God's grace. You've got to see that altar. You've got to walk past that altar to really understand what Christ has done for you and Christ has done for me. He's taken our sins away. We are blessed by God. We are forgiven. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new, the Bible says. Your old past is erased totally and you are given a new past, a past as though you never sinned in the first place. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that something to be excited about? I don't know what you've got in your past, but aren't you glad it's not being held over you anymore by God? Or do you enjoy your past? Do you love all the things you've said and done wrong? Do you hope they'll come up again when you stand before God someday? I don't want them to. We've been set free. Amen? Come on, church, wake up. This is our truth and our reality. Let's not sit there and just go, okay, yeah. <gasps> hope the twins win today. That's exciting. I think God's more exciting. I don't even know if the twins are playing today. All right, let's move on. Uh, I want to talk about the labor, all right? It's our next article we're going to look at, the last one. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. And come down to verse 17. Exodus 30, 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze wash basin with a bronze stand. Place it between the tabernacle and the altar and fill it with water. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet there. They must wash with water whenever they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord and when they approach the altar to burn up their special gifts to the Lord or they will die. They must always wash their hands and feet or they will die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and his descendants to be observed from generation to generation. What's all this washing about? It's about holiness. It's about helping them understand that they are, they are not able on their own to come before God. Something has to happen to them. It's a foreshadowing of what God is about to do in your life and my life when he sends his son to the cross. 
But whenever a priest was ordained to ministry, they had to come to labor. We've got a picture over here that we want to show you. And they would have to wash. Now, the temple gets much bigger. They could actually bathe in it. But they would wash. They would wash completely. Then they'd be ordained to ministry. The high priest, before the high priest can go in the Holy of Holies once a year, must wash completely. But when they go into that little tent, to the holy place, they have to wash their hands and their feet. When they offer certain sacrifices, they have to wash their hands and their feet. There's always this washing, always this cleansing that has to happen. You and I have also been washed and cleansed, and it's done by the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says in this passage of Scripture. He says regarding Jesus, he says he saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to accept. You, if you're a follower of Christ, you've received a washing. You have been entirely cleansed. You stand before God in Christ perfectly clean. That's why God accepts you and me. And his spirit comes into our life to impute or to put into us that new nature, that cleanness in our life. But we're still human beings. We still, we still have our propensity to sin. And propensity to sin is, is like we just sometimes we throw mud on our new image. My, one of my grandsons was out at his schoolyard. My wife told me she witnessed this. And, and uh, he was playing with some other boys by a mud puddle. Now, I don't know if you've had boys to raise or not, but little boys in mud puddles go together. They're, they're kind of inseparable. Find a mud puddle, find a boy. I, I know little girls are into it too sometimes, but especially boys. And so his mom said, don't run near that puddle. You're going to get dirty. Don't get yourself dirty. That's like saying to the child, run toward the puddle and see if you can avoid getting dirty. So he wanted to be like the other boys. He was running around it, and he got too close, and the dirt slipped out from underneath of him, and you know what happened. Into the mud puddle he went up. He got up with kind of a look on his face like, am I in trouble or not? And fortunately, Grandma bailed him out because she laughed. She thought it was funny, and she said to our daughter, boys will be boys. That's their nature. What did you expect? It is our nature See, a grandma can say that, you know. When you're the mother, it's a little harder, right? Your grandmother, you can say that. But it's our nature to sin, isn't it? It's our nature to get dirt on what Christ has done for us. But thank God for the word of, of the Bible. that says we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every day, I need to wash. Now, here's what's cool. That labor in the Old Testament that I read about here in Exodus, it was made out of bronze mirrors. The bronze would be polished to a high sheen. They took those from Egypt. The women had them. They turned it over and they said, here, make the labor out of this. So whenever the priest washed, he would see himself. He would see himself making sure the water got over everything. He would see himself being cleansed. The word of God is our mirror, folks. We open it up and we read it so that God can show us where there's a little bit of dirt that needs to be washed off. 
I don't know about you, but I frequently go to this word and God shows me some dirt. It may be an attitude. It might be a mindset. It might be something I've seen or something I've said. And he says, wash it off. In fact, not only wash it off, go tell somebody else you're sorry for what you said or what you did. Get clean. I've made you clean. Stop making what I made clean dirty. Get it off. Get it off. Is there something you need to wash off? When's the last time you looked in the mirror and let God reveal that to you? This needs to get washed off. You know, I want to go back one more time to the, to the altar. We'll finish up here. You know, the Bible talks about the Old Testament altar, the sacrifices made, the cross, the sacrifices made once and for all. But you know, we're still supposed to make some sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will is. You know, as God is saying to us, in essence, look, to encounter my presence, or to put it this way, if you want to jot it down, to encounter the presence of God in your life, you must surrender fully to him in everything. That's really the bottom line, isn't it? I just got to surrender fully. So we're going to have a sacrifice in here. Jeremy, why don't you come on up here? We got the altar ready for you. The good news is, it's not the kind of sacrifice in the Old Testament. It said a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice, all right? So you're going to stay alive, but nonetheless... Nonetheless, you're going to kind of do this as an example for us of presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to God. So let's imagine that this table and stones underneath it uh, represent an altar. Why don't you go ahead and just offer yourself on this, on this altar as a sacrifice. Yes, it held him up. All right, that's the first test. Now, good job, Jeremy. I appreciate that. But you left your legs and your feet off of the altar, which which is a problem we all have. There are some things we, we don't want to put on the altar to God. Sometimes it's money, right? God, you can have everything, but that's my paycheck. It belongs to me. I earned it. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's things like kids or grandkids. You know, it's like, God, I give you everything, but Lord, I have the perfect plan for my children. I want my son or my daughter to grow up to be this or that. Instead of saying, God, you gave me this life, I have ideas what I'd like for this life to do, but God, this child belongs to you. You, you do your will in that child's life. Now, sometimes as parents, we struggle to give our kids to the Lord. Or it might be, it might be an attitude, right, that, that we just were bitter, we're angry, or something we don't want to give up, and we keep it off the altar. And God says, if you, Jeremy, if you really want to experience me, everything's got to go on the altar. So go ahead, put everything on the altar, all right? When you lay down there, sacrifice everything before God, Go ahead. All right. Good. All right. Now, the problem, dude, is you got big hair. All right? So, so one of the things, which every time I see you up here, except you usually have it spiked up more. But anyway, uh, it's like, I think we got to shave the head. Uh, just kidding. All right. That's better. That's good. All right? But now the problem is you left your toes off. All right? So, see, there's always something little that we don't want to give up, isn't there? Something that somehow we convinced ourselves, here. It's okay, all right? In our mind, it's not much. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, step on some toes here, all right? Uh, like, I think one of the biggest problems Christians are struggling with these days and don't even know it is our viewing habits, what we watch on the media. 
I want to ask you a question. What you watch, is it glorifying to God? What you watch, guys, does it objectify women as sex objects? You know, pornography is a huge problem even amongst Christian men. Is what you watch leading to this whole idea of the hookup culture is what you watch, is it what you is is what you're seeing planting wrong attitudes? Is it making you numb to the violence and the hatred in our world today? I'll tell you, I think that's a huge, I think that is probably one of the biggest issues that's keeping us from experiencing God's presence in our lives and in the church. We got this idol sitting in our house. We turn it on, we turn it off, and it entertains us, and it entertains us with the wrong things. Now, you have to figure that out for yourself. We're not going to have burn the TV day next weekend. Don't worry about that. But I'm telling you, God says, you want me to show up? Everything. Go ahead, put everything on the altar, man. Everything. You got to do better. Your hair is hanging off. Now your fingers are hanging off. All right? There's a strand hanging off. Everything, man. All right, you finally did it. Let's give it up for Jeremy, all right? Thanks, buddy. It takes, it takes effort and work to surrender everything to God. Everything to God. I have two assignments for you this week. Assignment number one. You ready for this? For the rest of this month, actually for the month, the rest of this month, every day, I want you to get quiet until you sense the presence of the Lord like your pulse. For the rest of this month, it may take you five minutes, it may take you 50 minutes. You may have to battle through a whole bunch of thoughts. You may fall asleep, fine, wake up, but stay there until you sense God's presence. Then I want you to find an altar in your house. It could be a bed, couch, chair, doesn't matter. And every day, every morning, every night, I want you to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Wrestle with God till everything's on the altar. Everything. Be honest with him. Mind, will, emotions, relationships, sex, job, attitude, finances, everything. God, here it is. It's there for you. It's yours. Do that, and you're going to be blown away because God's going to show up. Let's stand and pray. Father God, we hunger and desire you. Please, Lord, come into our lives, come into our relationships. Lord, do a mighty work in the hearts that are here in the heart of our church. May we be like the tabernacle in the Old Testament. May the flaming presence, the raw presence of God take us over, inhabit our lives, inhabit our gatherings for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're dismissed.